passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our UFC 298 post show. I am John Pollock, reunited with Eric Marcotte, who is here with us. Hello, Eric, representing the Boston Celtics and Poison Rana. If if I have my no, you're not representing Poison Rana. What, uh, no, you have the detox from Poison. Ah, Rana, there Pete we go. Train, uh, Jordan Goodman and Brayden Harrington, uh, the two best things in the world: the Boston Celtics and Poison Rana. You got it. We're back. They go hand in hand. Well, Eric, it's great. We uh, we haven't checked in with one another in some time. It's it's great to see your smiling face coming off uh, UFC 298, where I mean, we got to see. Amanda Lemos and Mackenzie Dern, everyone's consensus fight of the night. <laughs> oh, we did, we did. How have you been? How have uh, it, it, give me give me a quick uh, for, for those that have not been following the uh, the week to week of Eric Marcotte. How how is 2024 going for you? Oh my god, I um okay. So here's the update. All right, L- last year towards the end of the year, I got a I got a management position at my job, which, which was great because. It's a pay raise. It's full benefits. Great stuff. Great stuff. But here's the thing. Like after a month of doing it, my boss, he, he walked out. Oh, so man. I've basically been in his role for the last, I don't know, month and a half. Well, there's been nobody in my position. So it's it's been a very stressful, uh, wild month and a half with very little MMA content consumed. In fact, I think this like the start of 2024 has to be the least amount of MMA I've watched in like a decade. Eric is smiling because he doesn't have to watch these cards live anymore. <laughs> it's, this, oh, how, yeah. how have your Saturdays changed, uh, Eric? It's, I know like it's, it's work commitments and such, but when you're not on the clock and you don't have to be watching, you know, the 42nd ranked heavyweight in a three round plotting affair. What what are your Saturdays like now where you don't have the I'm sure there's many times you enjoy watching these fight cards, but you now have a bit of flexibility. Uh, life has changed completely. Like I wake up happy now. It's uh, everything's everything's different. I, I don't have to dread these meaningless, unranked apex 15 minute heavyweight slogs. I haven't watched any of them. It, it's been lovely. And guess what? I was even more excited for this card tonight because I looked at it on paper and I said, wow, this is a good card. And I've barely watched MMA in two months. It felt fresh, exciting. 297 was not the most appealing card on, on paper going in. Uh, Dana White, I mean, clarified on, on Saturday night, they owe Toronto a card. But I would say t- tonight, uh, certainly for next month with 299 and then you have 300, like you have some big ones coming up that – um, would be pretty hard to imagine like these upcoming pay-per-views disappointing. And I mean, the fight night strategy is realistically, if you can see one to two key fights, that's sort of, and then it's, it's a crapshoot. Like you might see some entertaining fights on the undercard, but it's 
it's not going to be jumping off the page at you. These are some very thin Apex cards, maybe the thinnest that we have seen of the Apex era. Yes, definitely for the Apex. When they actually do go to tour to a city like the Fight Night event next week, the mm-hmm. cards are pretty good, actually. But the Apex ones are just abysmal at this point. They put no effort into it. They don't need interesting fights. There are fights headlining these Apex cards that wouldn't even be on this card. And this isn't the most stacked pay-per-view either. It's uh, it's a sad state of affairs for completionists. With all due respect, Eric means to uh, Jarzinho Rosenstrike and Shamil Gaziev that are headlining March the 2nd. Five rounds, potentially. Like, that is that is the Eric Marcotte special. Oh, yeah, that sounds so bad. My when when your headliner doesn't have a Wikipedia page... <laughs> That's the come to Jesus moment of like, okay, let's let's look at these cards. Right and he's now. the more appealing of the two fighters. He is too. So anyway, someone get it, get on that. Well, tonight we are talking about. Well, this morning we are talking about UFC 298 from the Honda Center in Anaheim, California. Alexander Volkanovsky making a pretty quick turnaround after his second loss to Islam Makachev. Everyone remembers last October he gets stopped, took that fight on about a week's notice, and in the the aftermath, you saw him, uh, there was a lot of concern just in terms of his immediate desire to return. And it's a four-month turnaround. And this was going to be one where, you know, a win for Alexander Volkanovsky, it would be all concerns would be erased. And if he got stopped, as he did on Saturday night, there are going to be larger questions for Alexander Volkanovsky. But what did you think prior to the result on Saturday of Volkanovsky's turnaround and coming back to his home week? division where he has been the champion for the last four years yeah i I didn't share the concerns that some people had given um his recent loss to makachev i thought enough time had passed where i wasn't overly concerned about the turnaround from that knockout loss and i don't i also didn't look at that loss as a indicative that he had perhaps lost the step at all it was um he got caught a like a couple minutes into a fight he took on two weeks notice i don't think it said a lot about him as a fighter and uh, I, I know a lot of people are starting to question Volkanovsky now that he is coming off that loss, now that he's, what, 35 years of age. But when we just go back um, to his two fights before that against Yair Rodriguez and the first fight against Islam Makachev, the narrative was that Alexander Volkanovsky is the single best fighter in the entire world. So I think we can all read a bit too much into a fighter's last fight sometimes. Yeah, and Eugene Behrman, his coach, recently did an interview and also gave like the the thought of, you know, from the other side of it is that, you know, yes, he took this fight on about a week's notice with Islam Makachev, and with that came a new UFC contract. And that's, you know, something that for future fights is going to, you know, increase his his purse as well. Like, these are all things that go into this thought process on top of a fight that, you know, he wanted to avenge this previous loss to, to Makachev. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like the the other side of it is you look at examples of guys taking fights on short notice and it's a giant career opportunity for him. But financially, it was a very rewarding one for Volkanovsky, but the results didn't uh, pan out. But let's talk about this fight with Ilya Taporia. For those that have not been uh, following the uh, the Taporia train, he is undefeated, 14-0 coming into this fight. And it was very... Uh, evident throughout fight week the amount of spanish language media that was in anaheim the he's originally from georgia but calls uh, spain his home and just seems to be someone that is 
a gigantic star for for that market and expanding outside of of just Spain as well. He's a, a tremendous fighter. We saw him ragdoll Bryce Mitchell in December of 2022 and then go the distance with Josh Emmett last June to secure this title fight. And coming into this, I mean, he was a slight underdog, but certainly someone that gained a lot of attention and maybe the most attention someone has got for updating their social media handles. Yes, yes, I heard all about that. And uh, hey, that gamble paid off for him. It would have looked a bit silly had had it not, or perhaps we would have all just forgotten about it. But that that's one that uh, worked out for the man. Hard to do that edit after a loss of like, okay, not undisputed UFC heavyweight cha- uh, featherweight champion. But the first round, we see uh, Volkanovski coming out and heavy kick game that he is executing on Taporia and Taporia starts uh, loading up with some right hands. He's got a phenomenal right hook as, as we would see. And we see a combination with a left hand landing for Taporia, but then Volkanovsky connects with a left and lands a couple of knees in the clinch, a close first round, but I went for Volkanovsky. All three judges did score the first for Volkanovsky. So looking fine in the first five minutes. And that was Taporia's prediction. He was going to sleep him in the first, although I don't think too many people are going to be holding him to the, the round uh, because in the second it is Taporia who is executing some, some kicks Volkanovsky getting behind his jab and then gets backed against the fence. And we see Taporia set up by going to the body with this four punch combination. The highlight of which is a right hook from hell as he puts Volkanovsky to sleep down goes Volkanovsky and the knockout victory comes at three minutes and 32 seconds of round number two, new UFC featherweight champion Ilya Toporia. Fun fight while it lasted. I thought both men fought very intelligently. Uh, something that, for example, Josh Emmett or Bryce Mitchell, neither of those opponents for Toporia were really throwing a lot of kicks at him. And Volkanovski changed that up by with a very kick-heavy offense, attacking both the legs and body, uh, finding great success in that th- throughout uh, the short duration of the fight. For Taporia, he he found the success exactly where people thought he would, by capitalizing on that left side of Volkanovski's chin, which is often left unprotected in these light, lengthy combinations. And in the first round, he landed it repeatedly. I actually did score the first round for Taporia just because I thought his shots were a bit more impactful, specifically those looping right hands that he was catching uh, Volkanovski with at the end of counters. And eventually, yeah, that is what finished the fight for him in the second round. Uh, Volkanovski just makes the choice when he's getting backed into the cage to um, to kind of clinch with his left hand while swinging back with his right hand. And that mistake, going for that instead of defending himself, is all it took for Tiporia to capitalize and land that beautiful knockout blow, uh, one that's going to be replayed forever. Yeah, uh, just looking at the the UFC stats from this, I mean... as short of a fight as it was, Volkanovski landed 15 of 17 leg strikes in, in this fight. Um, did land, you know, 12 more significant strikes, but obviously the impactful ones uh, belong to Taporia and uh, a grand total of zero takedown attempts from either fighter, as many probably ascertained would be a, a possible outcome in the in this fight. Afterward, I mean, Ilya Taporia was just treated like a... Like this felt like one of those title fights where the new champion feels like he is ushering in a new era, whatever that can mean. But this is the end of a champion who, since December of 2019, has held this championship, had the two fights outside of his division with Makachev. And in the immediate aftermath, Volkanovsky is shooting for the rematch and stating, hey, I've been a co- I've been a company guy throughout this time. That's going to get you absolutely nothing in these situations. And uh, sadly, fighters are going to learn that that hard truth. 
Um, I I don't know if like Volkanovsky, certainly by merit, you would say he is one of those guys that you think would be deserved such a rematch. But this is where I think the Makachev loss coupled with this is going to broaden the options for UFC, in particular, if Max Holloway is looking to come back to featherweight after this Justin Gaethje fight. Like, if he's not taking this Justin Gaethje fight, I think Max Holloway's got a contract in his inbox this morning for this title fight. Oh, 100%. They would already have been sent and signed to, exactly to Max Holloway. Um, I, I do think that timing-wise, things may work out for Volkanovski here, given that uh, he seems to have, after years of seemingly kind of being a fighter who is very, very good, but uh, fighting to get that support from the fans, he, he seems to have really risen in popularity from the fan base in this past year or so, uh, to the extent that he was the overwhelming favorite on this card to the live crowd. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the UFC cashes in on that and does go to the immediate rematch next. And it definitely deserved for Alexander Volkanovsky, who I think is like the seventh longest reigning UFC champion ever, which is uh, fairly ridiculous when when you come to think about it. Even if you compare him to the other featherweight champions, uh, Conor McGregor aside, of course, Max Holloway, Jose Aldo, very lengthy reigns themselves. Uh, Taporia has joined good company. I- I'd be down for the rematch. Holloway's got the fight coming up with Justin Gaethje. Again, that's that's at lightweight at UFC 300. Yair Rodriguez has a fight coming up soon. And then uh, so does Brian Ortega, Mosar uh, Ivloev. His name was being thrown out. It's not as though they are out of options. There's plenty for Ilya Toporia. And they indicated as much. They are going to Spain. I guess it remains to be seen if Toporia, it makes sense, Toporia, to headline that card. But they're also very selective with their champions and where they go with their champions for a pay-per-view, as opposed to Spain being like a fight night card to go into a market. So we will see. He obviously is somebody that if they opted to go, um, I, I think could be a really big deal in that market. Yeah, for all we know, this Spain card could be like an Anthony Smith uh, fight night, but ho- hopefully <laughs> they get their guy and have a big pay-per-view lined up for him. Jarzinho Rosenstruck comes to Spain. I mean, <laughs> could you could you imagine? Yes, uh, I could. So anyway, very, very impressive knockout here by Ilya Taporia, and we will see what is next for him. Next on the card, though, was a middleweight contest between Robert Whitaker and your man, Paulo Costa. Returning, I mean, it just feels like yesterday that he was battling with Luke Rockhold. But in fact, that was a year and a half ago since we saw Paulo Costa win all of 2023 without a fight, and he draws 33-year-old Robert Whitaker. This has to be the oldest 33-year-old that I feel has been in the UFC for like, 30 years. Yeah, he has been in the company a long time. He has been in some wars over the years, and he has been fighting the best of the best for about a decade now. So uh, a truly remarkable run from Robert Whitaker. So opening round, it is a Costa um, teasing with, with some, some head kicks early, and Whitaker would come back with a right counter and then starts chopping at Costa's left leg, and that would be a key target for Whitaker throughout the fight. Continues with the jabs, and it's Whitaker pulling away with this round. Pretty comfortable, but don't blink, because Costa, in the dying seconds of round number one, throws this beautiful spinning wheel kick and rocks Whitaker, and just like that, Costa takes this round. I mean, this was an unbelievable shot at the end. And this was, this was not one where it was like, ah, it's, it's, it's a close enough round. Like this was a solid Whitaker round. And I can't remember too many rounds where it was so, um, 
Now, it, this wasn't a one-sided round, but one strike that completely turned the momentum. I, it was just, um, it was a perfect way for Costa to end this round. I don't know if you remember, but uh, the fourth round of Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero 2 played out exactly like this, where the entire round, it's just Whitaker doing his thing. He's faster. He's outlanding him. He's laying the harder shots. And then with 10 seconds left, Romero just lands this absolute bomb that leaves Robert Whitaker like dancing into the cage. And he took the round. And it was the exact same thing here. Robert Whitaker looks so much better than Paulo Costa throughout this round. And in those final 10 seconds, it didn't really matter because Paulo Costa landed this beautiful spinning head kick that just sent Whitaker into another planet. It's amazing. As impressive as the kick was, it was perhaps more amazing that Whitaker remained on his feet and actually seemed to have composed himself before the final bell there. Uh, remarkable. The second round, to me, that tells you, I mean, like Robert Whitaker, who has seen every potential scenario in a fight play out and has that that experience that, I mean, this would be so deflating for a lot of fighters to have been, to have just lost a round in such fashion. And Whitaker just reset, new round, and he comes out. And Whitaker's nose is getting busted up from these jabs, but he is firing away with calf kicks, rocks him with this clean left hand and a really nice combination at the end. So I had it even after two rounds. Did you have the the same scorecard going into round three? Same as you. And the third round, it's now Costa, who is relying on a lot of low kicks, and he's coming up the middle with, with knees. Whitaker lands a pair of clean strikes, ducks a spinning wheel kick. He was ready for it the second time, and then it's just Whitaker pulling away with the, the striking differential in the five minutes to clinch this one. I had it 29-28 for Robert Whitaker. Two judges scoring it the same as me. One having it 30-27 wasn't going to be swayed by a nearly fight-ending spinning wheel kick, which I'm going to disagree with with that scorecard. I think 29-28 was a pretty consensus scorecard to have after this one. Like a great comeback, I will call, for Robert Whitaker because, I mean, that could have been a just mentally draining end to a round, and he came back to win the final two rounds, and it, it shows you why this guy has been as highly ranked as he has at middleweight um, throughout his entire tenure at this division. This was a really entertaining fight uh, throughout its entire 15-minute duration. Um, I'd say Whitaker was probably the better fighter for 14 minutes and 45 seconds of it, but that's not to downplay uh, the success that Costa found throughout the fight, too. I thought this was a really good show-in from him and uh, a super entertaining fight. Whitaker was just, he was too quick. I think that was the big difference here. There was a considerable speed speed advantage for Whitaker that Costa was never quite able to deal with. There were so many times where Whitaker would just take his quick first step in, and he would land one of those quick hooks that he threw repeatedly throughout the fight, and it felt like he couldn't miss. So we've seen a lot of these performances from Whitaker over the years. This was another one from the books. Um, Great one. I, I thought this fight was fantastic. I thought this was like a clear fight of the night um, for <laughs> sure on this card. And it was not <laughs> how wrong you were. I, cu- I couldn't believe it, to be quite honest. Like, yes, we are going to get into a fight that certainly had a lot of drama to it. A lot of damage that one fighter was able to withstand. But I'm sorry. Th- this to me was an, a, a relatively easy pick to me for, for fight of the night. I thought this is not going to be fight of the year or anything, but six weeks into the year, seven weeks into the year, this is one of the better fights this year so far. Like, I thought this was just an outstanding three-round contest between these two. Uh, easily the fight of the night in my eyes, but uh, our eyes clearly are... We don't make those decisions, Eric. 
we just speak for the people, and I think they'd be in agreement with us. Well, the people had something to say about this next contest taking place at welterweight. Ian Machado Gary, the polarizing Ian Machado Gary, taking on Jeff Neal, uh, a battle of top 10 ranked welterweights. And throughout the night, I mean, Frank Trigg is like a staple now as a referee, especially in California. But did you also notice one of the judges tonight, the crippler Chris Lieben at cage side, uh, handing in his scorecards as well? I did. Uh, I mean, I knew Chris Levin was a judge now, but if you would have told me 10 years ago that Chris Levin would have been a judge, uh would have blew my mind. So there there you have it here in uh, California. So Frank Trigg is the, uh, the referee for, for this fight. In the first round, it's Neil moving forward. He lands with a left. They have a clinch battle on the fence. And then it's Gary using his ke- his kicks pretty effectively, uh, targeting the body. Um for the fir- these first two rounds were so close. I think like there, there's no way you can you can argue definitively one way or the other. I lean towards Neil for the first round, but I, I thought these two these first two rounds were just so close to score. Yes, uh, agreed completely. I, I thought Neil did the better work in the first round, uh, primarily with those body shots he was throwing out in the clinch exchanges. What, what I thought the difference maker was in the second was he wasn't throwing those shots in the clinch, kind of just holding Gary against the cage, which allowed uh, Gary's shots from distance to really take control of the action. But uh, both very close, although uh, the commentary team certainly disagreed. Yes, <laughs> we'll get to that. The second round, Gary enters with a combination and then gets out of there. You can see like his superior footwork being a bit of a difference maker here. Connects with a knee, and then it's Neil with a combination right near the end. Again, a very close round. I had it even going into round three. And then the third, uh, this was a more clear round for Ian Gary, who cracks him with another knee late in the round. Uh, Really great strike here. Uh, the crowd, though, they, they are not into this. They are booing. And then Neil clinches on the fence as the round ends. And you could see, like, the commentators were frustrated that Neil was just clinching. His corner was just losing it on Jeff Neal here, that he was just not being effective with his game plan. And it is Ian Machado Gary getting the split decision win. Two of the judges scored all three rounds for him, which is a viable scorecard, given how close the first two were. And one having it 29 28 for Jeff Neal, which I have to say, if if I'm going to say that, you know, the first two were so close, you can't be, it wasn't the score I had, but it's one that I can understand someone arriving at that, even though it was, I did not feel Jeff Neal won this fight. Third was a definitive Ian Gary round for me. I had the same scorecard as you, uh, 29-28 for Ian Gary. This wasn't the most entertaining fight on the card. Uh, that's not to say I thought it was horrendous either. It was just uh, <laughs> incredibly average and had the misfortune of being sandwiched between two very interesting fights with more popular fighters. So at the end of the fight, you know, the horn sounds and Jeff Neal's like, you know, like no matter what, when it goes to a decision, every corner is going to, you treat it like you're the winner. Joe Rogan's, why is he putting his arm up in the air? Like just the audacity of this man oh. to believe that he was the better fighter over it, these it, last 15 minutes. And it wasn't just, it was like the tone of Rogan's voice. <laughs> why does he have his hands in the air? Like he just did the most absurd thing possible. <laughs> so like almost disrespectful. It was, it, it killed me. Joe Rogan's commentary is sort of like a choose your own adventure novel for our generation that grew up with those. I don't know if you're familiar with these books, uh, Eric, but Joe Rogan will be in the middle of commentary 
and he will see two options. Okay. He'll find, and these are his narratives and he will pick one and he is all in on that. There is no credence to the alternative. It is this lane that I have chosen and I am just going to run with it for the duration of this fight. And anything that challenges that viewpoint is absurd. Oh, yeah. Once he focuses in on something, it's all he can see. I think that was especially the case in the Whitaker-Costa fight as well, where once once Whitaker gets, like, uh, busted open in the second round, it's the only thing he keeps saying, well, Whitaker's getting busted up. Is Michael Bisping's going on like this, I don't, like, lengthy tirade about the great work that Whitaker is doing, and Rogan just completely no-sells any of it before going, yeah, yeah, but Whitaker's really bleeding right now. <laughs> Uh, honestly, I thought Joe Rogan was pretty good tonight, but not his shining moments uh, here. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill so ian machado gary he remains undefeated improving to 14 and 0 and afterward he gets onto the microphone and the crowd is just berating him with booze i thought gary was awesome here he's just like i hate when fighters are like oh don't boo or you know what it's like just own it. And that's what he did here. It's like, you all came to see me. You are all, everyone's talking about me. And then he calls out Colby Covington, which I think is a great call out for Gary to get a prominent fight. Uh, the key will be if, if Covington is uh, interested in, in such a fight, um, if they can get it. But, you know, Ian Machado, Gary, I think he certainly has a lot of, of tools. His footwork looked very good in this fight. I still have a lot of questions about him of moving up the ladder at welterweight, which a fight with a Colby Covington will answer some of those questions to see how elite he can be in, in this weight class. Cause I, I think everyone still has their reservations, but Neil Magny and Jeff Neal back to back, like th- those are good wins at 170 pounds. Uh, they are very good wins. In fact, I uh, like, I'm sold on Ian Gary now. I'm not saying he's going to be the next world champion, but I'm saying he's he's a le- legitimate. De- declare it now, Eric. Point. We can isolate this clip and go and go back to it. Uh, in, in a division with Leon Edwards and Shavkat Rekmanov, that's a tough thing to say. But uh, he's certainly a contender at this point. Um, a fight against Colby Covington's interesting. Uh, I can see how that would make sense from um, both fighters' viewpoints. But as a fan, I'm not sure. Um, what that would tell me about either fighter at this point, just stylistically, I, I feel like there's some uh, some holes there. I'm, I'm not sure where Colby Covington's at at this point in his career. His last performance wasn't exactly inspiring. Uh, regardless, uh, I think people would be into that fight. I'm sure it would be a very measured lead up as well. The, oh yeah, very, very respectful. respectful. Exactly. So. We will perhaps see that later on this year in the welterweight division. But now we move on down to bantamweight as we talk about potential future champions. This man would certainly be in the running. That is Marab Dwalishvili, who took on former uh, two-weight division champion Henry Cejudo, who is back after the loss to Aljamain Sterling last year, fighting him to a split decision loss. And coming back here, and Cejudo, even in the lead-up to this fight, stating, you know, if he loses, he was going to retire and may in fact be be retiring we will find out but the first round i mean henry cejudo stuns him with a left hand 
And then it's Marab fighting for the single leg, gets the takedown, which is pretty key on, you know, in a, an Olympic bronze medalist in Henry Cejudo. But Cejudo's right back up. Marab is continuing with right hands. And Cejudo is the one to land on top in a scramble. And then they clinch on the feet with Cejudo kneeing him in the body. A good first round for Henry Cejudo. But then we go to the second, and it's Dwalichvili landing several big shots early on. Cejudo's trying to go for the body, but then Dwalichvili, he would use, like, the single leg setup and then trip him to get a takedown. Later, he'd use, like, the single leg just to almost take Cejudo's focus onto the leg while he and prevent the takedown and open him up for strikes. He was being very strategic with his use of the leg. And Cejudo is using the fence to get up, get sent right back down by Dwalishvili. And then late in the round, Dwalishvili is just kind of like on top of him and is casually going for this guillotine. And suddenly this guillotine looks like it's getting locked on. And we failed to mention that uh, getting a prime seat at this event was one Mark Zuckerberg, who Dwalishvili is like just chatting with as he's got this guillotine on and Zuckerberg's having the time of his life watching this. Like, look, he's going to choke out Henry Cejudo. So a great round here for Dwalishvili. And then the third, he continues it using the single leg, setting up strikes. Um, very good head movement here. Lifts up Henry Cejudo. This was his tribute to Matt Hughes. And um, maybe Frank Trigg should have been the referee for this fight. He would have had flashbacks because he is carried across the octagon and dumped down. And it is Dewalishvili. At one point, they put up the stat that Dewalishvili is ahead 62 to 5 in strikes in round three alone. And Dewalishvili cruises to a decision victory 29 28. He has now won 10 in a row coming off his wins against Jose Aldo and Piotr Jan, improving to 17 and 4. And matchmaker Joe Rogan said, you're next for the title fight. You're going to be fighting the champion next. So done deal for Joe Rogan. Done deal. Nothing can possibly happen to change that now. <laughs> um, tremendous performance from Rob. Uh, honestly, Cejudo at his age fighting a weight class up from where he fought at most of his career. I was impressed by him too. Uh, I thought this was a good, a really good showing for Cejudo. Who, so to put this into perspective for everyone, I am, um, I watched this card only a few hours ago. I work all night and then I come home and watch this. So I watched this at maybe 9 a.m. And I'd already heard the result. And I had heard the um, general consensus that uh, Marab ragdolls Henry Cejudo. So I'm going into this kind of expecting a very uh, a very one-sided fight. And I felt like I was treated to a much more interesting bout than I was expecting. Cejudo... Um, most of his success did come in the first round where he had more energy and was matching Marab's pace. But as the fight goes on, Marab changes levels to an extent that Cejudo can't really deal with. He can't deal with the pace and he can't deal with the wrestling that Marab was putting on him. And as the fight goes longer and longer, it starts to go, it starts to get more one-sided like you see in a lot of Marab's fights. Um, Man, when he just picked him up, you compared it to the Matt Hughes-Frank Trigg one, but you know, that one, there was a sense of urgency to that as like Hughes sprints across the octagon to dump him. Yeah. This There was no urgency here. This Marab just picked Marab him up. Marab could have flexed and, as yeah, he was doing this. I was he ready carried him like a child, just slowly walking to his desired place to go talk to Mark Zuckerberg again. <laughs> it, was, it was something special, honestly. Um, a great performance, uh, just like his last fight. It's amazing that Marab is in the position he's in now, honestly. I remember, what, what four or five fights ago, he fought Marlon Marias. And this this isn't prime Marlon Marias. This is like the ghost of Marlon Marias. 
And Marlon Marias nearly ended this guy's streak, like had him on another planet. But the referee lets it go, and Marab mounts the big comeback to get the knockout. And, and then he fights Jose Aldo next, an old Jose Aldo. And honestly, Aldo lost the fight, but he really kept him from doing anything. This wasn't one of these ridiculous Marab paces. This kind of wrestled against the cage for the entire fight. Now, when I watch this man's last two fights, it seems so hard to imagine anybody beating him. He feels like he's really stepped up his game. And I don't know if it'll be Sean O'Malley or Marlon Vera, but I am favoring this guy against anybody at 135 right now. Yeah, he, to me, um, like he he's just turned such a a corner in in a major way in the in these last couple of fights that that you have seen this. I mean, afterward he is pleading that I want to fight longer. I want ten rounds, and just gives this incredible speech that went almost as long as the fight lasted, and is you know pleading his case and the fact that you know even like throwing in there that you know we said me and Aljo would never fight but if they present us with money <laughs> maybe we will fight i mean he's just throwing everything out there and it looks like it, sterling and dwalishvili like they had this you know agreement that like they were not going to fight one another and it's turned out like sterling is moving up to featherweight we're going to see how that campaign goes for him but dwalishvili there's nothing in his way now i think this was a clear cut um, path to the championship and it was great that they had Sean O'Malley in the crowd they cut to him he's got this ridiculous fur jacket on like he couldn't look like more of an asshole in this moment and the crap like it, you were already building uh this fight but I mean uh Sean O'Malley is a pretty big fight in three weeks uh, time I think that um if you can get to O'Malley and Dwalish Vili like facing the teammate of the guy you beat the t- beat for the title there's a great story uh there as well um but yeah, b- bantamweight is just stacked to the brim, and Dwalishvili seems like the the guy that feels sort of like the uh, kind of like the Shavkat of this division. That he's not the champion, but he seems like the guy that is the guy to beat now. Uh, very much feels that way, especially after I mean, as good as this performance was, the like fifty forty five mauling of Piotr Jan was just uh, very revealing as to just how good this guy is. In uh, total strikes, Dwalishvili outstruck him 167 to 54, but the stats that really are impressive to me, five of 11 takedowns completed by Dwalishvili, uh, only one takedown for Cejudo in this fight. Like getting five takedowns on Henry Cejudo in a three-round contest, that's that's a remarkable achievement. Yes, and I will say part of that is Henry Cejudo fighting at bantamweight. I, he, he's, like a, he's a stocky guy, but... He is undersized for for 135. You've seen it in all of his fights, even the ones where he's won or been extremely competitive, like the Aljamain Sterling fight. He, he's looked fantastic because he's a fantastic fighter, but this was always going to be a bit of a difficult division for him. So the post-fight, it was all focused on Dwalishvili's speech, and we couldn't see this, but it was said that Cejudo took his gloves off. He had said in the lead-up to this that if he lost, he would retire are you sensing that this could be it for Henry Cejudo? Or do you think that this is one where we might see him rethink that decision and come back at some point? Like, where are we at for a guy who's now 37 years old? I, I think that the uh, later part is the difference between this and his last retirement, which none of us took seriously. Um, he is 37 now. He's lost two fights in a row. He's not, uh, he's not like 
33 years old, retiring on a massive win streak against a bunch of all-time greats as a two-division champion. This is off two losses, this one being a decisive one. That's not to say uh, he can't come back and fight. Of course he can. He just had competitive fights against Aljamain Sterling and now Marab, two of the best fighters in the world. He can clearly still be competitive. But can he be the champion? I don't know if he can. So if that's what's motivating him, then perhaps this will be it for him. Uh, if not, uh, yeah, it wouldn't shock me to see him in there again. Yeah, I just, I look at some of these people, like Henry Cejudo is going to be matched with with someone of like a high ranking. And if you're looking at a Corey Sandhagen, a, even a Devison Figueredo, I mean, these are exceptionally mm-hmm. tough fights for uh, Henry Cejudo, but ones that I, I would still be interested to see even yeah. at this stage. Like Henry Cejudo did not look shot in this fight. No, he won no. the first round. There's still more to be had. The question is for Cejudo, like it is a pretty tough path to navigate if your sole focus is a championship, like in, in particular in this weight class. Exactly that. Hey, I'd love to see Henry Cejudo versus Piotr Jan. That that seems like a very interesting matchup to me stylistically. I'd like to see him against Marlon Vera. That that sounds interesting to me too. But at the same time, I always approve of when fighters can actually get out before they take too much damage. And perhaps now is a good time for Cejudo to walk away. Opening up the pay-per-view main card, it was Anthony Fluffy Hernandez against Roman Kapilov. Uh, both men coming into this with four-fight win streaks. And in the first round, it was Kapilov defending takedowns and landing some kicks to the body of Hernandez. And Hernandez responding with right hands, aggressively going for the takedown that Kapilov defended and landing an elbow at the end. A lot of defense by Kapilov, which isn't going to win you around, but at least forwarded off Hernandez's aggressiveness. But the second round, Kapilov goes to the body with a left hand and then lands a big shot with a head kick that follows. He goes for the body kick, but Hernandez lands on top and then starts clinching against the fence. And Hernandez gets him down, has the back, and then he's working for this choke. And you think that Kapilov is about to tap, but this was like right out of like AEW where you're holding up the arm like three times and the last one he's just like he's not gonna give up but then Hernandez just locks it in deeper and he looks at the camera like this is over and it's a deep choke Kapilov taps at 323 of round number two so Hernandez now riding a five fight win streak um, a good win here Roman Kapilov is uh no one to sneeze at at, at middleweight and ends uh, his own win streak I, I was very interested in this one going into it. I thought it'd be an interesting matchup stylistically. Um, Anthony Hernandez has uh, far surpassed my expectations for him after his first few fights in the promotion. I mean, I, I remember watching the guy on the Contender series, and I think he beat like Jordan. Do you remember Jordan Wright? He beat Jordan Wright, and uh, it, it was fine. And, and then he comes into the UFC, and I think he loses his first one. I was like, well, I'm sure I'll never see that guy again. But. <laughs> The Rodolfo Vieira fight happens, and it's, you know... Going to be one of the all-time finishes of a a fight. Yeah, an all-timer finish that everyone who watched it will remember. Everyone who knows who Rodolfo Vieira is will remember. And since then, he's won five fights in a row, all in pretty entertaining fashion. He's making a name for himself. He's a ranked fighter, and he's someone I look forward to every time he's on the card now. Listen to the, like... The Rodolfo Vieira submission fight, that submission win, that was three years ago already. Um, Mark Andre Barrio, Edmund Shabazian, and now Roman Kapilov. Like th- those are some nice wins on your resume. Yeah. On top of it, um, which which balances out your uh, 
40-second win against Jordan Wright that is overturned due to testing positive for marijuana in 2008. Oh, wow. That is, that's golden. <laughs> that's, that's a rough start. So anyway, there you have it. Anthony Hernandez uh, improving. A very good win uh, for him. On to the prelims we go, and we're going to start off with the fight of the night with uh, Amanda Lemos and Mackenzie Dern. I mean, th- this was a very good fight. It just was not the fight of the night, in my opinion. Uh, Lemos comes out strong, and she is just destroying the calf of Mackenzie Dern. Dern herself, like I had a lot of questions. She she looked terrible against Jessica Andrade, and this to me was a, I wouldn't even say must win, but you needed to see some improvements from Mackenzie Dern because I think everyone was just at the um at the end of kind of the Mackenzie Dern experiment here at at strawweight if if she didn't look markedly improved but the first round it, it's a Lamos round as she uh defends being she's taken down in the second half of the round and it's Dern controlling her on top but doesn't is not able to mount her Lamos is defending using a butterfly guard but to me all all the strikes to me over overrode the um ground control by Mackenzie Dern. Second round, Lamos lands its right counter as Dern rushes in and Dern um, just gets nailed here. And she is like running away as Lamos is throwing everything, drops her and Dern is covering up. I'm thinking like she broke her nose and she's just covering, but referee Mike Beltron lets this go. Lamos is on top, continuing to attack, but Dern, Dern survives this. And I say survive in the loosest sense because she gets up. Dude, it looked like she was auditioning for The Walking Dead. She has this right eye that looks like it's right out of like T-1000 or something. It was like her eye was just so damaged and her nose could have been broken for all we know. Um, Lamos finishes a takedown and just dominates this round. This was a 10-8 round for me for Amanda Lamos. And somehow Mackenzie Dern got out of round number two. Yeah, it was uh, impressive durability. And in fact, Dern even took top position before the end of the round. She ended it in an advantageous position, but uh, <laughs> it was still a very dominant round for Amanda Lemos. And going into the fight, this is kind of how I imagined it going. Um, Lemos is a skilled grappler in her own right. She's not going to dominate you with her wrestling or whatnot, but um, she hits really hard. And y- you could see the difference in their striking abilities throughout the belt. Third round, Dern is able to drop her with a right hand. And this is where it gets very entertaining here that Dern is not only surviving, but she she is now doing very well in this third round. Pulls guard as Lamos is on top and uh, Dern gets on top in half guard and is able to win the third round. So all three judges scored this one 29-28. I had it 29-27 with the 10-8 second round. So Lamos bounces back after that decision loss to Zhang Wei Li last August. It's the second loss in a row for Mackenzie Dern, but I think that the the narrative of Mackenzie Dern is going to be so different after this loss versus the Jessica Andrade loss because everyone is just talking about this incredible toughness that she had. She been finished after the in the middle of the second round. I think it'd be a different story, but I, you know, Dana White was just raving about her toughness afterwards. I would say that um, it's a loss for Mackenzie Dern, but I think her perception was enhanced from this performance as opposed to her last outing. 
the good news for Mackenzie Duran with uh, Jessica Andrade and now Amanda Lemos out of the way, she's not going to be fighting anybody with that sort of power at strawweight again, uh, unless she somehow finds herself across the octagon from Zhang Weili, but I don't think that's in the cards. Uh, Mackenzie Dern's typically an entertaining fighter. I, everyone knows how skilled of a grappler she is. And I think there's a certain level of fighter or, or fighters even with a certain weakness in their game that she's always going to be able to exploit. But in, unless she really sharpens up her... Stri- well, you know, I was going to say her striking technique, but I'd say more importantly would be her defense on the feet. Um, she puts herself in a lot of really dangerous positions. Like, I think of a Damian Maya, a, a guy who he was all jujitsu, but he wouldn't, uh, <laughs> he, he wouldn't put himself in those type of uh, situations on the feet where he would be in danger. He would be desperately trying to take fights to the ground at all costs. And there are people who fought Damian Maya, like Chael Sonnen or Carlos Condit, who said the guy legitimately hits very hard, but the technique wasn't there. Mm. So, it's a good comparison, yeah. I think if Mackenzie Dern really tries to sharpen up her wrestling and take just take these people to the, the ground. The wrestling is such a big hole yes, in, in the game. Exactly. Um, that That's where she will find uh, further success. Otherwise, she may have hit her ceiling, although it is an impressive ceiling. Yeah, I like I look at this and you know, we're kind of like heaping praise here but like let's let's limit it like i do not see Mackenzie dern as a championship level fighter at this division but she can be in like she can be somebody that is put in you know still quality fights and such but i i do think like after this many fights this many years in the ufc you sort of see what the ceiling is for Mackenzie dern next up was marcos rogerio de lima against junior not justin taffa so if you were confused here on friday Justin Taffa has to withdraw from the fight, and we think we're losing a heavyweight fight. The worst news that Eric can get on his phone. Heavyweight prelim fight drops out. But at the last second, brother Junior Taffa steps in, steps onto the scale, and he is taking his brother's place on one day's notice um, to take on uh, Marcos Rogerio de Lima. And, oh, man, Junior Taffa, he's got a fight scheduled for March 23rd against Carl Williams. I'm going to venture to guess he is not fighting in four weeks after this one because, man, his leg was nearly, like, auctioned off here at the Honda Center. DeLima is hitting these low kicks. Dude, Justin Taffa, after about three of these kicks, can't put weight on his leg. Like, this is not looking good for him. It's like, he's smiling, but he's like, what the hell did I do here? Like, this was just a... This is like, um, you know... You're 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 online at three in the morning. You're you're drunk, and you just buy something stupid off Amazon, and then it shows up the next day, and you got to sign for this. It's like, what the hell did I do? More leg kicks. Tafa can barely put any weight on it, so Delima hits a takedown off the fence and just controls for the rest of the round into the second. Tafa not switching stances. It's like, you know what? My left leg is destroyed. Let's just keep it to the left leg being destroyed, and. Taffa does start to land with a jab, starts to get his his strikes going, boom, leg kick, and he is down. This was like just like the man was shot and just pummels to the ground and is finished with hammer fists at a minute 14 of the second round. So this is DeLima coming back after a 33-second loss to Derek Lewis last July. Has now won three of his last four. And uh, Justin Taffa, or Junior Taffa, my mistake, um, we will see if he's coming back on March 23rd. I'm going to put the odds very, very, very low on that one. Uh, maybe Justin will take his place for that one. 
Uh, that would be so, you know what I could totally see that happening. I think it's completely That's possible. probably a fairly decent chance. I didn't even think of that possibility. That's it, that is matchmaking at its finest. Marcus Rogerio de Lima, this guy. Uh he's been around a while now. This guy's like he's been in this company for like a decade. And let me tell you, he I, I never look forward to seeing his name on these cards, not because he's boring, but because you know the level you're getting when you get Marcos Ruggiero de Lima on a card, okay? This guy is your ultimate heavyweight gatekeeper, okay? If you if you don't have a prayer of ever making the top 15 at heavyweight, Marcos Ruggiero de Lima is going to annihilate you. And if you're even a half-decent, like, 15th-ranked guy, you're going to annihilate Marcos Ruggiero de Lima. He's the perfect gatekeeper. He can probably stay in this... Like he's 10 years in. I could see him doing this in another 20 years because age doesn't matter at heavyweight. You can go until you're 60. Nothing really matters there. Just look at Andrei Arlovsky. Um, this was a Marcos Ruggiero de Lima kind of fight. All right. He fought a guy on a couple hours notice who's <laughs> had a couple fights in the UFC who probably won't be sniffing ranked competition anytime soon. And the expected result occurred. So, um, I, what is there to say about any of this? Uh, I, nothing. Let, let's move on. 12 leg kicks for Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Justin Toppa, though, one for one on leg kicks, 100%. <laughs> we move on. Rinya Nakamura, a minus 1350 favorite in this fight, taking on Carlos Vera at Bantamweight. Uh, Nakamura is an incredible wrestler. He was an under-23 champion in 2017 in Japan and retired because of the Tokyo Olympics being delayed a year. So, you know, very, very high-level wrestling skill coming in here. Big prospect. Um, But this fight was just not good. I'm just going to get the headline out right away. Nakamura escapes a leg lock that Vera is uh, fighting for in the first round and just wins with ground and pound on top, working in half guard. Second round, it's Vera pulling guard and Nakamura just works inside of it. I mean, a lot of like, you know, technical fighting here, but this was, this crowd was quick to boo and I can't necessarily uh, get too upset about them over here. Nakamura takes the back. He's peppering with strikes again, all controlled by Nakamura. In the third, Vera opts to stand, realizing, you know what? I'm not going to win this one on my back. So the corner knows he needs a stoppage, throws a spinning wheel kick. It misses, and Nakamura just controls on top, puts him back uh, to the mat, and it's just Nakamura working in his guard. Not an exciting fight. 30-27, Nakamura stayed af- stated afterwards he thought he broke his right hand. Yeah, not too much to say about this one. Uh, Carlos Vera didn't quite look UFC ready here, obviously, against a very tough opponent. Uh, it, it was a dull fight. He tried to kind of Ryan Hall his way into making something happen here, but um, he spent the entirety of the fight kind of on his back, pulling guard repeatedly, and wasn't really ever in a position to make something happen offensively. I think he came, like, he, he was chasing a lot of leg locks. A uh, very low success rate on those in mixed martial arts, and uh, this fight was no exception. The most exciting thing would have been if Drake put some big amount on Carlos Vera as the underdog. That would have been fun. <laughs> Bredjesen Hibero against Jean Mingyang at light heavyweight. Uh, Mingyang has this this resume that just looks insane. We'll get to it in a minute. But the the focus of this fight, Mingyang, if you look, he's like he's 
fixing something in his eye like he's been poked or something and you're wondering oh man is this going to be it's it's not acknowledged by mike beltron he just continue fighting so they just wind up and throw and he lands this right hand and then follows with a left hook that just puts out Hibero, finishes him with more hammer fists at 141 of the first round. Uh, this is now 10 wins in a row for Min Yong. He's had one decision in his career, and he has not been out of the first round in his last 14 fights as we uh, see him improve here to 17 and 6. And they were just going insane for this guy. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> 90 seconds of two men trading wild, wild shots. That, that's what I like to see at Light Heavyweight. Light Heavyweight uh, title contender right away. <laughs> hey, and the best part is after this guy. I, I think this was his UFC debut, right, uh, Zhang? Yes. He, he gets on the microphone and <laughs> he calls out Alex Pereira, UFC 300. <laughs> He's calling his shot. Dude, shoot your shot. Like, why not? <laughs> Go for it. This is my kind of guy, okay? He he's he's not here for a long time. He's here for a good time, okay? Let's just cash in the chips, dude. This guy against Alex Pereira, like, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but you would have so much excitement going into this fight that one of these guys is going to be asleep in about ninety seconds. Would be the he, likely. He didn't even get fight. like the he didn't even get like the scoff from the commentary. Like, uh, oh, wild to go. For, he got a. Oh, I like that guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, somehow he said it and it was endearing. So props to him. Joe Rogan is like, Jeff Neal thinking he won this fight preposterous. Yeah, ridiculous. John Ming Young over the title? Huh? I'm open. <laughs> I'm all ears. <laughs> it's light heavy, Uh To the early prelims we go. We'll we'll just uh, blast through these ones. Uh, Josh Quinlan against Danny Barlow at 170 pounds. We had Barlow, the uh, the left hand of God. Juice Robinson uh, disciple here, uh, Danny Barlow. So the first round, uh, there's an eye poke to Quinlan, but Quinlan re- uh, connects with a right hand and drew out some blood from the mouth of Barlow. Uh, the second round, Barlow hits a really nice left hand and a jumping knee follow-up and seems to be finding his rhythm. A lot of knees to the body here that they were remarking on. Third round, it's uh, Barlow with a big left dropping Quinlan and follows up with hammer fists, and Herzog finally just waves it off as Quinlan gets to his feet, and it looked like Quinlan's eye was just uh, annihilated here. Danny Bartolo gets the TKO win at a minute 18 of the third round. Yeah, uh, I, I like this fight. I thought it was entertaining. Uh, Josh Quinlan's an entertaining fighter. I, I'm trying to think if this is my first exposure at the Danny Barlow. Nothing's coming to mind right away, but I thought he looked really good here. He was he was much quicker than Quinlan, and had, he was able to utilize his reach advantage well, too. I don't think Quinlan was ever really able to deal with that throughout the fight. He was on Contender Series last September, so this was his official UFC debut. This is a welterweight with a 79-inch reach. Yeah, that, That's an incredible amount for a welterweight. So It's a tough amount of distance to cover. Val Woodburn and Oban Elliott, they went the distance here. Um, a lot of focus on Oban Elliott. Uh, Woodburn uh, was coming down to welterweight after losing to Bo Nickel in his UFC debut in 38 seconds. Um, and in the first round, I mean, it looked like he might be able to close the show pretty early here he lands this head kick that elliot just absorbs and recovers taking down woodburn and it's elliot who has the back with his hooks in and he's fighting to try and flatten woodburn and lands more ground and pound works in half guard and then mounts him at the end landed lands some big shots so after taking this head kick this was the reversal of apollo cost and robert whitaker he took the head kick early and then uh won the round back afterwards Second, it's uh, Elliot landing with with right hands, 
gets the back to the fence. Lots of pressure here. And crowd starts to boo this. I was like, this is a little early. This second round of the second fight of the night. Third round, it's a uh, Woodburn tries to sprawl, but Elliot just powers his way to top position. More boos. Elliot gets the mount and tries to go for a mounted triangle, but Woodburn escapes to his feet, and we just see some clinching until the end. Obon Elliot gets the decision 30 27 twice and 29 28 as he bookended his promo with uh, with Ric Flair lines from with a tear in my eye. And then he got to meet CM Punk backstage and seemed very excited. Uh, made his day, I'm sure. Uh, an entertaining opening to the fight, but this turned into a pretty dull one. Uh, of all the fights on these, this entire card, I think this was the one that I will forget the quickest. And opening things up, Andrea KGB Lee against Miranda Maverick. They went the distance here. Um, I had Maverick winning the, the first two rounds. And then in the third, uh, Maverick is faster. She's got more movement, but there's a spinning back fist by Andrea Lee, definitely her best shot of the fight, and Maverick gets to take down at the end. Lee attempts a triangle with elbows and lands some shots at the end. Uh, I went 29-28 for Maverick. Two of the judges had 30-27. Miranda Maverick won this fight, and for Andrea Lee, this kind of feels like the end of the road for her. She's lost four in a row and is 3-7 and seven in her last 10, which is not a record that you last too long in the UFC with. No, I, I have to imagine that's it for her. A, a fine win for Miranda Maverick. If, if you just look at the two fighters' uh, records to this point, you can kind of see what the UFC's intention was with this one, getting Miranda Maverick a, a, a win against an opponent she was likely to beat here. And, and I thought she did so in fairly impressive fashion. I, I scored every round for her, although you could argue the uh, the, the last round for Andrea Lee. Plenty of arguments, I'm sure, coming out the day after over that, uh, that, yeah. that third round. <laughs> Uh, some other notes from the show. They announced UFC 301 for May the 4th in uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is the same day that WWE has their backlash card in France. So you can have a, uh, a whole day of TKO content coming your way. Also announced is joining Frankie Edgar in this year's Hall of Fame class, Vanderlei Silva. Uh, well-deserved. <laughs> What's your favorite Vanderlei Silva fight, Eric? Do you have well, one? You know, th- there's something special about the ones that you're actually watching uh, as they happen. And even though it wasn't one of those wild Vanderlei wars that you can go back and watch, seeing the uh, the knockout over Brian Stan in what oh, was his... That fight was insane. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> like just him getting that win at the end, which uh, many people thought to be his retirement at the time, given mm-hmm. the uh, lengthy suspension that he was about to face. Um, that one always sticks in my mind as a, a great memory of Vanderlei towards the end of his run. If you go back, yes, of course, you can look at his wins over Rampage Jackson <laughs> or even uh, his uh, his Bellator <laughs> fourth times the charm match. Uh, kind of entertaining, as old as they were. Uh one of those fighters from the beginning to the end always had an aura about him, a really entertaining fighter. And in his prime, which I would say early 2000s, when he was actually fighting at 205 pounds as much as he would uh, venture upwards, a uh, really talented fighter too. His, you know, the, the fights with Kazushi Sakuraba, I mean, as insane as they look today, given the, the size discrepancy. I mean, yeah. those were those were so huge for pride where, they had the fight in March of 01 and then the rematch, like they're able to bo- book the Tokyo Dome for the rematch. And it was, you know, Sakuraba, I think, lost years off of his career from those fights with with, so- with, with Silva, among many. But like going into that that uh, 
middleweight Grand Prix in 2003 that he won. I mean, there was so much hype for that Grand Prix and the lineup that they had. And that's where they did the third fight between the two of them. But, you know, that that run as middleweight champion up until the last show where he gets beat by Dan Henderson, it's this unbelievable run. Like he would go above his weight class, but at that middleweight class in in pride, I mean, there was just such a, a dominant run that he had. And by the time he gets to the UFC, like it's it's past his prime, but still someone that is just this incredible attraction fighter. And they knew that booking him with Chuck Liddell right away and just putting him in a lot of entertaining fights and got, you know, a pretty lengthy UFC run when you saw like the wars this guy had been through in pride. So I think he's someone that, you know, certainly if you, if you didn't live through Vanderlei Silva, especially in the pride days, you're going to look at his record and it's not going to jump out at you. But man, this was you know, one of the all-time great action fighters of his time. One of the best entrances that you're ever going to have with, with Darude. Um, so anyway, um, gr- great induction. And one of, one of the best questions at the press conference was Dana being reminded that 10 years ago when he joined Bellator, he said, he's been Pete rose from the UFC. He'll never be in the Hall of Fame. And Dana totally had forgotten about this when it was brought up to him at the press conference. I mean, just classic. <laughs> oh, I forgot that I blackballed him from our UFC <laughs> Hall of Fame. My bad. I forgot. So anyway, there you uh, go. Maybe Paul Daly will go in next. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. That was UFC 298. So looking ahead, uh, just to a few of the cards coming up that I know. Uh, well, next week, as we mentioned, they're in Mexico City. That should be an unbelievable atmosphere with Brandon Moreno, Brandon Royville uh, on top in flyweight action. And they also have a five-round fight between Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega um, that I'm even more intrigued by. Like, those are two outstanding fights on the top of that card in Mexico. You've also got Raul Rojas Jr. that, I mean, has so much attention on him given his age. He's taking on Ricky Tercios. That would seem to be a, um, a pick-me-up fight for Raul uh, Rosas Jr. You know, we'll R- Ricky Tercios might be a pretty tough fight for uh, Raul Rosas Jr. At, at this point in his career. I, I could see that going the other way. The next weekend, it's the big one. Jarzinho Rosenstruck <laughs> and Camille G- Gaziev. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've looked over this card, but second from the top, we have Tyson Pedro and Vitor Petrino. Alex okay, Perez yeah. against Mohamed Mokayev. Okay, that's uh, Mokayev is the real deal at 125 yeah. pounds. And then the next time that the two of us will be uh, chatting, schedules permitting for uh, one Eric Marcotte, it is UFC 299. And this is an awesome card. Sean O'Malley, uh, Marlon Vera in the rematch uh, from several years ago when they fought at the Apex. They'll instead be in Miami at the Kaseya Center. Dustin Poirier against Benoit Saint-Denis in another five-round fight. Kevin Holland against the debuting Michael Venom Page, Jack Della Maddalena against Gilbert Burns, and Piotr Jan against Song Yadong. That is a solid main card. Uh, I'll be very sad uh, when any of these fights fall apart in the next couple of weeks. Definitely, because on paper, this card looks absolutely fantastic. I'm looking forward to every fight you just mentioned. And the preliminary card is better than any of these Apex cards that have Curtis happened. Curtis Blades is headlining the prelims, dude. Like, that's. I get Sheldon Almeida, who might be your like next top contender at heavyweight. Uh, you have Mateus Gamrod, who's like the third ranked lightweight right now, fighting RDA. RDA. <laughs> Pedro Munoz is on the card. Go down and you'll find uh, Michelle. Like, the opener is Joanne Wood and Marina Moroz. Yeah. Like this is a this is a tremendous card. Uh, this for, card for is absolutely stacked. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, I think Poirier and Saint Denis will probably be your 
big, exciting slugfest. So everyone is definitely looking forward to that. But the the main event should be interesting as well. The the first fight between Marlon Vera and uh, Sean O'Malley, of course, ended rather quickly. Um, it'll be interesting to see what version of Marlon Vera we get on that particular night, because there are two versions of him, and uh, the one who just kind of stands around and loses rounds on points, uh, that might be a tough night for him, but the one who really puts that forward pressure on, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Marlon Vera could walk out as a UFC champion. The last thing we'll talk about is UFC 300, which doesn't take place until April 13th, but we now have a main event. And so it's going to be three five-round fights that are going to be topping this card with Justin Gaethje and Max Holloway for the BMF championship, Zhang Wei Li and Yan Xiaonan for the women's strawweight title, and announced Saturday night the main event of the card will be Alex Pereira against Jamal Hill for the light heavyweight championship. And it seemed like there was a a very long road towards the main event of this UFC 300 card. How do you feel about what they arrived at as the the headliner for this card? I'm in the minority, I think. I'm very positive on this main event, actually. I I know uh, when I read about the general discourse about this, it seemed like a lot of people expected something bigger, but then I have to ask, what is it that was expected? Were you expecting Conor McGregor to fight? You know he wasn't fighting on this card. Were you expecting John Jones to fight? You know he's injured. So what is... Like, I'm not... I don't know what the expectation was. I can tell you my expectation. My expectation was that they didn't have anything and that the card was going to be main Wait, event. wait, wait. Dana said we're we're going to have a main event that's going to blow your minds. Okay? Yeah. And, and that's, that's what people ran with. But when when checked with, like... As you said, like schedules and yes. logic. I mean, what were they going to arrive at? Like, folks, Brock Lesnar was not coming back to fight on this card. No, I, um, I, I'm just, I'm not sure what people were thinking. Yeah. I, I look at that as a really exciting matchup between two of the heaviest hitters and more entertaining fighters in your higher weight class. So I'm, I'm pretty positive on it, to be honest. I think, I mean, for all the praise we just heaped on 299. UFC 300 looks like the most entertaining card in the history of MMA. This is absolutely ridiculous. You have Charles Oliveira on the card, and he's like fourth from the top. That's that's insane. Yuri Prohaska, Alexander Rakic, Calvin Cater against Aljamain Sterling, Bo Nickel, Cody Brundage, the debut of Kayla Harrison against Holly Holm, Sadiq Youssef against Diego Lopez, Marina Rodriguez against Jessica Andrade, Jim Miller, Bobby Green, and Devison Figueredo against Cody Garbrandt. And they've stayed. There's one more fight to come for this card. It's it's totally like the next two pay-per-views. There's like you just cannot have a legitimate argument against complaining it's like these are two unreal pay-per-view cards even if they lose something along the way like there's so much depth to these cards that they are and this is going to have so much promotion behind it too with like i'm very interested to see how they cross promote it all given it's it's like wrestlemania and 300 on back-to-back weekends that these are the two standout events of the year for tko um, it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do that because we are seeing um very like limited or minor cross promotion like you saw Bianca Belair and uh, Montez Ford on the UFC show today. You saw who got Punk. no reaction when they were showing no. on camera. Like to be fair, there, like there's they, no they were cross showing... there's no crossover between the MMA audience and the pro wrestling audience. Even when point. CM Punk was showing on camera, granted it was earlier on the card before I think the arena had filled out. Yeah. 
like some reaction, but nothing crazy either. I mean, it was like the big reactions were like your Robbie Lawlers, your Chuck Liddell's, your Dan Henderson's that, that were there. Oh, the reaction game is my favorite part of every card, actually. That my favorite, without a doubt, every single pay per view when they just go through the fighters and you can see who's popular and who's not. I love it. Uh, my, my favorite thing, but, but yeah, pretty much nothing for our, the other fun uh, part of that is seeing like someone else of note that's sitting behind them that isn't getting that treatment. Like you have. You know, like Angela Hill and Jessica Penne are like just sitting back there. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're we're not going to be showing here, but uh, nonetheless, it, it's always the reaction game is always fun on this. That and uh, when a split decision is read, did you? The the thing we missed is when they read out that Amanda Lamos won. If you see the isolated shot that I think MMA Junkie had, Mackenzie Dern thought she had won, so she starts celebrating, and then they're explaining, no, no, no. They said Amanda Lamos. You're not Amanda Lamos. And she kind of had a laugh about it. But if you find the video. Why does she have her arm in the air? Uh, How embarrassing. (laughs) Joe Rogan did not call her on that one. But there you have it, everyone. That is our whole rundown of UFC 298. Uh, So tentatively, we will be back Sunday, March the 10th for UFC 299, which looks like an an excellent pay-per-view. A good use for Eric's uh, time off to be watching those fights. But Eric... Thank you so much, as always, for uh, jumping on and doing this. Um, man, do you want to do you want to plug anything? Any any resumes people can send in to fill any job positions? Is there anything going on in the world of Eric Marcotte you want to let people know about? I got absolutely nothing for you. Uh, you can go to choptees.com to find amazing hats just like this one. Aside from that, I will see you all next month. All right. That's it for us, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Chop-tease.com slash post wrestling. Go get your MMA Marcotte merchandise that is uh, populating out there. A big draw is one Eric Marcotte. That is it for UFC 298. Thanks for tuning in tonight. The NWA podcast live at 8 Eastern here on this channel. So keep it locked for all things post wrestling.